Welcome to another episode of The Carpenter Shop, a limited edition podcast presented by War Starts at Midnight. I'm Chris Gallagher. And I'm Jacob Graves. Once a month, we take a deep dive into director John Carpenter's colossal canon. Sometimes we discuss a film we already know and love. And other times we discover a gem for the very first time. Jake, what's on the docket today? We've got a review of John... Car- um, not John Carpenter's. Uh, David Gordon Green's... Um, equally titled Halloween. Not to be confused with John Carpenter's Halloween. Or Rob Zombie's Halloween. Correct. Or the Holiday Halloween. Plus, I've got a pick for the perfect beer to sip from your Michael Myers mug. And we've both got something you should definitely check out in Really Rad Recommendations. But first... Hey, Jake. Hey, Chris. We're uh, pretty deep in October at this point. And uh, I don't know if you've noticed, but uh, all we're doing is talking about John Carpenter or John Carpenter Jason movies. I know. Feels pretty good. It also feels right because it's October and John Carpenter is the master of horror. And so like last year, we are dedicating October once again to John Carpenter solely on War Starts at Midnight and The Carpenter Shop. So I just wanted to give a heads up to listeners uh, about sort of what we've got coming up. We have actually already recorded an episode on uh, Ghosts of Mars, so expect that to drop pretty soon. And then we are actually wrapping up chronologically John Carpenter's filmography with The Ward after that, which will be coming, uh, I believe, in November. But uh, fret not, folks, because we've actually got some more John Carpenter goodness for you after we wrap with The Ward. We're going to go back and discuss some films that we've skipped over for uh, whatever reason. That reason generally being that it was somehow related to television. So I'm talking about Elvis, Somebody's Watching Me, Body Bags. Uh, maybe even the masters of horror. So just, just all your John Carpenter lanyap, basically. Uh, coming in. Your, your John Carpenter lanyap. What Jake is lanyap? Lanyap is like a, a Louisiana, a New Orleans term for like something extra. So like we did all the John Carpenter stuff. Now we do the lanyap, the little bit left over. This isn't like an acronym or anything. This is just a word. No, this is just a, an actual word. Uh, there's a really entertaining Mark Twain definition of lanyap. I think you can find it on the Wikipedia page for the word lanyap. Uh, <laughs> okay. Go and read that. Okay. That's yes. my recommendation. So we've, we've got, we've got some John Carpenter lanyap coming up for you as well. So that is all to say that, uh, we are, though we are nearing the end of our, uh, John Carpenter exploration, we've still got a little more lanyap for you. Uh, after we discuss the ward. And for those of you who haven't been listening along from the beginning, we've got a whole lot for you to dive in in the archives. Uh, so you can find those either on the War Starts Midnight feed, the dedicated Carpenter Shop feed, or you can just go to carpentercast.com and find all the episodes there as well. So, so are we allowed to review this movie, Chris? Are we allowed to add it to the Carpenter Shop? It's not a John Carpenter movie. Uh, it is John Carpenter adjacent, at the very least. I mean, we have reviewed films on the Carpenter Shop that uh, Carpenter hasn't scored, technically. And we always talk about his scores. He scored this one. So we can at least score the score here. We can score the score. And he produced it. So we're not going to rate it on the Carpenter classic scale. No, absolutely not. No. And, and we're not we're, we're not involving this in the uh, Clash of the Carpenter either. This is its own standalone thing. So this is just how, this is just a Carpenter's fan view on David Gordon Green's Halloween. Really what this is, is this is your lanyap preview. <laughs> Perfect. Well, if you're ready for some lanyap, stick around because we've got our review of David Gordon Green's John Carpenter's Halloween. Michael Myers is a human being who killed his sister when he was six years old. And he came after you. We just want to know why. We want a glimpse inside his mind. Michael Myers murdered five people. And he's a human being we need to understand. They're transferring him. Tomorrow. Seven o'clock. Yeah, he'll be locked away until the end of his days. That's the idea. Laurie, we saw him. 
we met with Michael. I showed him the mask. There was nothing. No response, nothing. He won't talk to anyone. Never has, but, but I think he might speak with you. All right, Jake. So we have discussed uh, this particular film quite a bit on the carpenter shop just as sort of news as it was in development and shooting and everything so i feel like we kind of know the basic plot but just to cover it just in case just in case folks haven't seen it although like if you look at box office returns this weekend uh it's it's raking it in it's the uh highest grossing slasher of all time um it's it's doing pretty good pretty good at the box office but basic plot of this movie, uh, it's 40 years after Halloween, John Carpenter's original 1978 film, and nothing has come after. Halloween 2 doesn't exist. Halloween 3 doesn't really matter because it exists in a parallel universe where Halloween is actually a movie by John Carpenter. And then the rest of the the Halloweens, those don't exist either. I heard it was all just urban legend, Chris. <laughs> And and so Laurie Strode is now 40 years older. Uh, she has a daughter and a granddaughter, and she's sort of been living with uh, PTSD of the night Michael Myers came home uh, ever since that evening. And Michael Myers is about to be transported to a new facility, uh, which this news has sort of re-sparked Laurie Strode's fear of him that she's lived with uh all her life and so that's that's sort of the the bare bones of kind of what sets us off and then we get into some stuff with some podcasters who say that they are uh investigative journalists and uh well let's let's just dive into it jake there's i guess there's a few ways that we can sort of approach this film and maybe we will look at it from a few different vantage points there's uh how does this how do you think this film stacks up as a direct sequel to John Carpenter's Halloween? How do you think it stacks up just as a horror film in general? And then how do you think it stacks up as a David Gordon Green film? Uh so let's start with the obvious. How do you feel about this as a direct sequel to Halloween? So it's interesting. It's very interesting because I think it's one of the most interesting horror movies I've ever seen because it's a sequel where um, the survivors have PTSD. Like she mm-hmm. is legitimately, she has problems and it's a pretty realistic pr- portrayal of what I think it would be like if Michael Myers had come after you, you would never leave the house again. Mm-hmm. And so it's a much different um, movie to me because in the first one, while we did go into Michael Myers' background and we did see him moving around and killing and all this stuff, he felt like a force of nature. Here, yeah, he felt more human because we spent so much time with him. That's an interesting assessment in that, like, yeah, because we we begin the original Halloween with him, but then it really becomes it's really Laurie's story. More than anything else. Yeah, he's he's on screen, but he feels more like the shark in Jaws. Like, he's there, and he's in the shadows, and he's coming, and yeah. he is on screen. He is moving around, and he is terrifying, but he's not on screen this much. Well, like we discussed in, in our review of the original Halloween, he spends most of the time in the movie very small, like in these wide shots very far away. You know, we're, we're almost, it's, it's almost a voyeur perspective on him being a voyeur himself looking back. This one um, had much more of like a, a theme I noticed of reflections and mirrors, sort of like mm-hmm. deception going on. Um, but a, a lot of him being pretty big in frame and, and just, yeah. Yeah. just from behind following him around. That being said, it played into what I think was the biggest theme in this movie which was getting into the head of Michael Myers. It's what the podcasters mm-hmm. wanted to do. It's what the doctor wanted to do. Um, and by the end of the movie, uh, without spoiling anything, we sort of see the tables turned a little bit. Sure. Um, and, and a blurring of, uh, of, of Michael Myers and Laurie Strode. So where do you land on this? Where do I land on, on how it works as a sequel? Yeah. I think, I think it's a pretty strong sequel. I'm not saying okay. it's great and it's a it's a A plus entry into the 
into the series, but I thought it was I thought it was I thought it was strong. What about you? I think and you know, these are all just willy-nilly sort of we 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 can reframe so many different ways. Um I think as a direct sequel to John Carpenter's Halloween, I think it's the weakest sort of take we we get. And I think I think part of that is actually something that we discussed and debated um maybe not debated but we we sort of discussed the difference between michael myers and the shape Mm -hmm. um in in our initial discussion of halloween and i feel like where all of the sequels get michael myers wrong is they want they're they care about michael myers they don't care so much about the shape Mm -hmm. The shape is the terrifying piece. The shape is the thing that cannot be defined because the unknown is the part that makes it creepy and scary. And this movie is all about Michael Myers, not the shape. He is not the shape. It's trying to bring definition to him. I, I agree with you wholeheartedly. To the point where in this film, at some point I was thinking like, this poor guy, he's just mentally damaged and he's killing mm-hmm. everybody. And now he's under attack by these like, like we need to do. And and I, I did what they said, like, we don't need to get in Michael Myers head. That's not a thing we need. Mm-hmm. Lori Strode was very against that. She kicked people yeah. out of her house for that. And the movie eventually did that where I was like, I feel a little bad for this guy. Which is not what you want to be for the shape. The shape is just a force of nature coming in to kill you. Well, and I think that's, you know, ultimately where, because there's, there is just a heavy, uh, sort of, if, if you're presenting this by saying, okay, we're throwing out everything else, you know, as far as canon for Michael Myers, which is pretty murky from what I understand. And, uh, like listeners may know, I've only seen up through three and then bits and pieces of, other stuff. So, um, I am by no means a like Halloween connoisseur, but they're David Gordon Green, Dana McBride, who, who wrote this, they're throwing all that aside. And so that's pretty like you're, you're saying, okay, I have an idea that's so good that it deserves to be essentially re rebooting the sequels. If that's a thing you can do. Um, and I just don't know if the approach fully works for me because I feel like uh, they are still getting away from what worked so well about the first one by putting so much into Michael Myers. That's my that's my big beef with uh, with it being a direct sequel. Like it just doesn't carry the weight that uh, the original does, and I think that's because you we we have lived with 40 years of lore and of and of expanding him into a full-blown character and so to to back to to try to back out of that it's just it's a lose-lose situation in my opinion well i'm I'm coming at it from a much different perspective because i've seen a, a grand total of zero of the other movies and only the original once uh-huh okay throwing out all the other stuff i don't know anything about it um i could recognize that at some point they said she was his brother. Yes, that that happens in the second one, which John Carpenter wrote the script for, but sort of spitefully. Yeah. Um, throw all that stuff out. That's fine. I thought this was just an interesting, like, play in the same universe, if you will. Mm-hmm. Like, I liked that it stayed with Laurie Strode. I liked that it did show them as, like, matching up against each other. And I appreciated the, the strong... Uh, I, I liked the strength of her. I liked how prepped she was. I liked that the first time she saw the shape, she immediately shoots him in the head. Like, mm-hmm. it was a mirror, but still, like, she was fully armed, ready, and prepared. And I liked that she had become, essentially, a murderer. I liked the play in that sense. Uh, was it as strong as the original? No. Uh, but I don't think it did anything to cheapen the original either. I agree with that. I just think, and and I do think you're you're right. There's something very interesting about Laurie Strode, who like at the time that we see her as a teenager, she has so much promise and is such a like live wire. I mean, she's she's very smart. She's very quick. That's why that's why she's the final girl, not because she's you know, the one who's not having sex, but because she's the one who is alert and who is smart enough to get away. 
even if she makes some stupid decisions. But I mean, let's be honest, you might do the same thing if you were in her in her shoes. And so now there is there is something tragic about seeing, okay, she became this recluse and it sort of ruined her life and everything. I guess one of my issues is I feel like we don't really spend a whole lot of time with her. And that's sort of where this, like, if if I'm approaching it just as a horror movie, I don't mind so much because I think uh, one of the strengths of this film is the characters that David Gordon Green and Danny McBride have created here. I like almost all of them. And I think the casting is immaculate across this film. Um, David Gordon Green always has really good casting, but uh, especially here, everyone I pretty much loved. But it's almost a double-edged sword there where I feel like he's made so many characters and characters that I enjoy, but we really don't spend much time with Laurie throughout the arc. We spend way too much time with this sort of red herring podcaster thing up front, which... Hey, take it easy on the podcasters. Well, they're not even good podcasters. They're running around with a Taz cam with no boom mic. And like, what are they doing? Just $3,000 in an envelope. They like, I don't know. I feel like those were really weak characters. And I don't know if they were trying to go for something that's like, oh, it's sort of like Janet Lee and Psycho, where you think they're going to run throughout the thing. And then just kidding, we killed them. But it doesn't really matter because you already know it's a sequel to Halloween. Like you came for Lori versus Michael. That's what yeah. we've been promised. Why even introduce them that way? Like Because they are exposition in human form. That is that is it. We needed a way to 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 move the chess pieces so that the mask could get close to Michael Myers. Yeah. And that's about it. And and so it's I mean, I feel like they sort of waste time with them. And then like I I think uh is it Allison the granddaughter? Yes. Um I I felt like she was she was really strong. I liked Judy Greer, her mother. Um I feel like we could have if we would have focused in strongly on the dynamic between those three it would have been a much stronger story as this kind of follow-up and this sort of generational, like like you're speaking to the the trauma and the PTSD of Lori, how that actually follows down into uh, how it affected Judy Greer's character, her daughter, how it affects her granddaughter as well as as sort of this she's been disconnected from from Lori from her grandmother but we don't get a whole lot of that because we've got we've got these other characters we got to hang out with and I like I love Dave I love the I love the kid that uh the the friend is babysitting but ultimately like they sort of get in the way of that yeah i i i hear what you're saying like it, it probably could have been reined in and a little more focused but i enjoyed the character so much that it made the world feel really real and cuz they had mm-hmm. all these interesting things going on in it um which is probably david gordon green showing up in the movie more and then some of the stuff they yeah. were saying was the danny mcbride showing up but but that being said there was still a good bit of like how Laurie strode affected karen affected allison like there was that plot in there and you did see that Judy Greer had been messed up by this childhood and that she managed to spare her daughter from it. And so there was that in there and it was developed enough that by the end, um, I guess we should roll spoilers at some point. By the end, when they're in the, the basement um, of, of Laurie Strode's fortress, um, I did buy that Judy Greer would know how to use these weapons. I did buy that she had a messed up yeah. childhood. And it, it did... Um, it didn't have the full catharsis that I thought it would have, where it was sort of like Judy Greer being like, okay, you messed me up, but you were right. He came back and we had to kill him. 
Like it mm-hmm. didn't have the full catharsis, but I think it's fine that that was off screen because it it would have been a waste of time to show it. Like you you I think you got that anyway when they all worked together to solve the Michael Myers problem. I don't disagree with you entirely. I and and this is where like so I I'm going to just sort of adjust and now I'm going to reframe it as as a horror movie okay. versus as a direct. So for me as a horror movie, I like what David Gordon Green and Danny McBride did overall. Part of me watching this feels like, oh, I kind of I kind of just wish they would have made just would have written an original horror movie because I'd like to see how that would play out without the attachment of having to worry about um, tying all this other stuff up that everyone I, because there's expectations there you know i I, um, I hear you because i think all the characters all these new characters that they present other than the podcasters are pretty good and i instantly cared about them and so like honestly initially going in i was really excited over the first you know half hour or something because it was like oh, okay we're getting sort of the slow build we're learning who these people are and this is going to be its own sort of thing but then the inevitable of, oh, yeah, it's got to be Lori's story of redemption or dark redemption, whatever it is, kind of comes back in as we get to the second and especially the third act. And so it, it's a little unbalanced. I, I see what you're saying. But also, I think that the reason it had to be a Halloween movie or not had to be, but it made it really easy um, to make a movie where a grandmother fights off a slasher. Sure. Like, how do you go in and pitch that? I guess today you might do it, but you definitely wouldn't have it be number one at the box office. So we got to see Grandmother Fights Off a Slasher, and it was amazing. And that's kind of what helped breathe some life into it. It wasn't a newly married couple, a high school, um, you know, group of friends, or young adults trying something. Like, it wasn't any of those things. It was a completely different kind of dynamic going on there. And I liked that Jamie Lee Curtis was a grandma. I liked that she was able to bring in a lot of energy to the role. Like she didn't feel old and like world weary because she felt like she had stayed so sharp. I think she did a great job in the role. No, I thought she was really good. And I think she actually feels like a continuation of Laurie Strode, Mm -hmm. which I think is to, you know, I, I, I think Jamie Lee Curtis deserves a lot of praise for that. And then I think, uh, green and McBride, deserve some praise for getting that character right in their trajectory. Um, it's just a sort of mix of there's, there's maybe too much going on here for, for all of that for me. Um, so let's, and, and I'll just go ahead and spin into my David Gordon green mode. I like this a lot as a David Gordon green movie. I like that. I basically never know what I'm going to get from him. You know, initially when I was introduced to him, it was with George Washington and all the real girls and sort of these very, I mean, basically when David Gordon Green started out, he was essentially cribbing on Terrence Malick, more or Mm -hmm. less. And he has since sort of shown himself to be a very dynamic director who can do everything from you know, ridiculous uh, stoner comedies like Pineapple Express and uh, Your Highness, which I did not see, The Sitter, which I really like, even in spite of it being like maybe, a, you know, it's it's sort of a C-plus movie, but it's a lot of fun. And then he makes stuff like Prince Avalanche and Joe. And, you know, you just, you never really know what you're going to get from him. Um, I thought Stronger last year with Jake Gyllenhaal was really good, really, really good, like low-key, low-key great. And so I think him doing an, a horror movie just kind of proves that he's how versatile he is. And he's I, I think if we weren't talking about this in the realm of uh, sort of the carpenter shop on the whole, this probably wouldn't come up, but he kind of feels like a slight modern, uh, Howard Hawks in a way, just in like, he can, it seems like he can put on any hat and make any style of movie and do it in a way that feels right and authentic. 
not just in like, oh, he's the guy who can make Terrence Malick movies, but then like he attempts to make a stoner comedy or he attempts to make, uh, you know, a, a harrowing drama uh, about real life events. Somehow he pulls it off. Um, and I think I think he pulls it off here making a horror movie. No, I, I, I agree. He definitely pulled it off. I, I saw George Washington um, and mm-hmm. I haven't seen literally anything he's done since. Really? Nothing. I'm aware of I'm aware of it, but it's just something I never think to watch him. But watching this and seeing his approach to how he handled the town, the people in the town, the things they were doing, it felt like mm-hmm. um, something related to like a link later or something, because we kept seeing all these little conversations <laughs> that were going on. Like, yeah. So this is a bond me sandwich. Like that whole yeah. that whole thing between those cops was great because it, it wasn't necessary, but it was so much better than just like two cops sitting there. And then it was really good. Also, that guy's apparently really a cop. Really? Yeah. Which goes back to, you know, him with with George Washington and using non-actors. Mm-hmm. I don't know how many non-actors are, are in this, but I think he's actually a cop from the I, I think from the South Carolina area. Um, and then that kid the yes. the kid that I mentioned earlier that that the friend is babysitting is so good. He's like honestly, him and Dave are probably my favorite parts of the movie. I, I love that the, the kid was like, "Go in there, and you're gonna die." <laughs> well, send Dave first. Yeah. <laughs> no, it, uh, was, it he was he was great, and and he was directed so well. I, I think David Gordon Green is just really good at directing kids. He is very good at directing kids, which goes back to the beginning. Yeah. Um, and I think he also, I mean, I think it's it's very obvious that he loves the source material mm-hmm. because of the way, I mean, there's a lot of, there are a lot of homages here to at least the two Michael Myers related Halloweens that I've seen. There's several to 78, um, Dave's death, rest in peace, Dave. Um, the, when Lori shows up outside the school, Obviously, I mean, they're even talking about fate and her her granddaughter is basically sitting in the same position as she was uh, when she first sees Michael Myers. There's the the ghost under the sheet. There's the ghost under the sheet. Uh, Not not quite as great as Bob as the Bob ghost. Uh, But uh, yeah, there's there's a lot of those. There's there's even I caught at the very beginning of Halloween Two. there's a similar, a very similar death to uh basically when you remember when basically he first arrives in Haddonfield and you see his reflection in the in the window and then Mm -hmm. he goes and murders the old lady did you think he was going to kill the baby well that that is something i found interesting but underdeveloped is like okay we obviously set that he has some sort of rules Mm -hmm. but what are they because he strangled the kid in the bronco right so it's not necessarily that he's opposed to killing children, but maybe it's because the, he saw the kid kill a guy with a gun. I don't know. Well, yeah, and I, I didn't know if it was trying to imply that like um, he's only killing the people who aren't innocent or something like that, which can't possibly mm-hmm. be it because he goes in and kills a random grandmother with a hammer and stabs a babysitter yeah. for no reason. Like, there's just things that he does for no reason. So he's not like like fate. Um, or, or maybe not fate is the right word, but he's not like an, an ultimate judger of behavior either. Well, fate makes sense because you, you kind of framed him as fate in our, in our original conversation. That's, true. uh, but no, he doesn't. And, and that's the thing is I don't think he matches that here. And, and that's where you get murky when you're trying to delve deeper into Michael Myers and change him from the shape into Michael Myers, because he's ultimately, there's just going to be flaws um, in that. Anyway, sorry, all of that to get back on track, all that is to say that, uh, I, I think David Gordon Green loves the source material and he pays close attention to, um, both how to utilize it as homage, but also how to like misguide the audience with probably my favorite, um, just overall execution of that comes from when, uh, I forget her name it's the the friend who's babysitting it's dave's girlfriend in a scene that's very close to uh annie from the original Mm -hmm. uh halloween where she's in this sort of back laundry room or something with windows at the back and you see sheets uh kind of hanging on a clothesline which 
reminds us of Michael Myers mm-hmm. standing there in the sheets that Lori sees out of her window. And so we're all expecting, oh, he's going to show up. This is going to be a place. Okay, let's scan the let's scan the frame. And what happens? We get one of those classic John Carpenter stingers. And then Dave comes in with his hobby horse. And it's, you know, a false jump scare. Uh, and it worked great. Like, I don't know how your audience was, but like my entire audience just freaked out. And it was almost, it was this relief when they realized, oh, okay, he's, he's getting our goat. Yeah. Um, that was probably the like most tense my, my crowd got throughout the entire thing. Uh, but I, I think it's, that's the type of thing that uh, you're going to get with someone who knows and understands and loves the source material. So I, I think there's still stuff to appreciate. It's just at the end of the day, I'm sort of at a like, did we need a Halloween sequel? I don't know. I'm I'm glad we got this, but did it need to exist? Mm, I don't know. Probably not. I, I didn't think there was story left untold in Halloween. So in that way, I don't think we needed the sequel. But mm-hmm. I do think that um, I enjoyed this enough that I'm glad it exists, which is maybe maybe my my uh, solo a Star Wars story take as well. Like it didn't need yeah. to exist, but in this particular case, I liked the dynamic of main character being um, three or the main characters being three generations, three generations of strong, independent women. Um, yeah, fighting off the shape and beating him through brains and planning and forethought and all that like it was it was really enjoyable i i re- i really liked all that stuff maybe not needed maybe not necessary but not a bad entry into into that franchise i don't think no i i mean i don't think so either and i think it's a movie that i will continue to watch i mean when october rolls around and it kind of starts getting a little cool outside there's nothing i want to do but watch horror movies uh, i've been watching a lot lately and I think this is one that I will continue to rewatch. I mean, I I enjoyed it in spite of some things that don't ultimately work. So maybe I I may honestly come off more critical in this discussion than I actually am. I I liked it. I appreciated it. I enjoyed it. I just I'm in the place where it's hard, especially since we've been so focused on Carpenter, um, where it's like I understand that, like, I understand why he gave it his blessing because it's more in the tone of like if he was to make a mm-hmm. sequel, where he would take it. Especially look at his latest two movies, which are very um, female protagonist uh, films. Mm-hmm. This is definitely mm-hmm. where his headspace. I mean, I know those were uh, what ten and fifteen years ago or whatever. Yeah, um, but still, um, seventeen years ago. Yeah. Um, but I, I guess what what I wanted to ask you about it. Um, big picture, like the the main themes that I took away was mm-hmm. the necessary attraction between, uh, not like sexual attraction, but attraction between the shape and Laurie Strode, and then sort mm-hmm. of the exchange of roles between them, where she goes to, well, she's hunting him instead of he's hunting yeah. her. He's hiding from her instead of she's hiding from him. She's checking closets. He, she's the one that falls off the balcony and then runs away. All of those things, like how effective did you think that was? How much did you like that as far as like flipping the script a little bit and about one needing the other and all of those things? I I would have honestly, I would have preferred to have more of the focus on that. I mean, which I guess I'm a broken record at this point, but had it been more of a like sort of dark haunted house creeping around thing Mm -hmm. with focused on Lori more tightly. Yeah. I think it would have been more effective. Um, I I like what it's doing. I do think that like the way that they frame it is the best possible scenario because I feel like I've always felt that in Halloween, he only becomes sort of intrigued by Lori and then also by her friends because she just happened to show up at the Myers house to drop off the key. Mm-hmm. You know, like he went there probably i mean you got to think like this kid he was like eight years old when he he went away and they locked him up so uh there's just his understanding of the world has got to be stilted in some way and so i've always just assumed that well naturally he's looking for catharsis going back home Mm -hmm. 
and then he doesn't get it. And so then he latches on to Lori because it's like, oh, well, she's about the age of my sister who I killed. I mm-hmm. have these weird you know, feelings, so I'm going to follow her. And then it just sort of snowballs from there. Yeah. So I'm I'm glad that it's not uh well that it's not a oh well he's looking to kill his sister now mm-hmm. from the you know uh but also that it doesn't seem to be that he's really out for her because why would he be out for her? He he's not going to remember that. But she is. She's going to carry it with her. Yes. So I I like that. I think that's smart. Um just not enough of the it. The other thing I liked is he didn't like grab a phone book and look up Laurie Strode. Like, events happened yeah. that happened to place him by her house. Um, mm-hmm. And 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 not in a he was particularly stalking her or her bloodline or anything like that. And it, it adds to that fate aspect of Michael Myers. He was going to come for her again. Yeah. That, that being said, I thought the replacement for Loomis uh, was not my favorite part of the movie. <laughs> yeah. I didn't really enjoy him. I, I, did, I did appreciate the line, oh, so you're the new Loomis. Yeah, I did like that too. But <laughs> uh, that's that's another place where it felt like a misstep in, like I get, okay, it's a role reversal sort of thing where Loomis probably thought Michael was a little too, like a little more evil than he actually was. Mm-hmm. Whereas this guy finds that he has a little more humanity than he actually does perhaps. And it just, it felt kind of flat. I, I'm sure you probably saw this as well, but uh, I guess the one like note story note John Carpenter gave was the movie initially opened with Loomis's death. And he was like, no, 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 don't do that. Just skip over that. Um, <laughs> I didn't know that. And I'm glad, I'm glad we didn't have to see Loomis die in some yeah. Weird, like weird, like that would have like sheet over the head, audio off screen kind of way. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that that would have been bad. That would have been really bad. Yeah. Uh, and I, you know, I think they utilized Loomis to the extent that they needed to. That guy was one of the unnecessary characters for sure. Yeah, and and I I did like that Officer Hawkins just plowed Michael Myers down, but the scene that followed mm-hmm. was just so. Weird. I know they tried to foreshadow it a little bit and establish like some sort of um, issue or or um, disagreement between how Michael Myers should be handled before, like the scene before that. Um, but still, just him putting on the Michael Myers mask and all that stuff. I mean, ultimately, it all just sort of plays out as horror set piece. Yeah. As like, wouldn't it be cool if? Yeah. Rather than the story. I thought they were going to go some direction where Michael Myers dies and uh new Loomis becomes the new shape and he puts it on and doesn't talk anymore. And like the shape took him over. I thought maybe, maybe it could be something interesting there. There was nothing interesting there. There was nothing. Inter- that would have been a bad movie. That would have been a really, really <laughs> bad movie. Just the shape starts to go ghost of Marsing from person to person. But now, now he actually won't stop talking. That's the <laughs> twist. So the, the the last thing I thought about this movie um, was that it was the strangest entry into the Home Alone series that I could expect. Have you ever seen uh, Last House on the Left? No. Okay. Last House on the Left is very Home Alone, especially in the third act. Really? Like it, it just, yeah, it just becomes Home Alone, but you know, like what, 25 years before Home Alone or whatever. The other thing is if it is Home Alone and I am prepping a house for a serial killer to come and try to kill me in, I'm going to get rid of my mannequins. I'm not going to keep them inside in a room. <laughs> I have four empty rooms and a mannequin storage unit. That's what I have in my house. I was curious about the contractor who came out <laughs> and installed the gas lines. Uh, All right, this isn't the code, but we're out of city limits, so go for it, lady. Like somebody had to be, unless she learned, unless she learned, maybe she did. She had a lot of time. Well, on they, her she hands. had a welding mask on the wall. Um, I did notice that. Okay. So maybe I mean I don't yeah think I don't you, I don't think you weld gas lines. No, but but, but uh, I think it means she's handy and she can do things. But yeah, that that stuff was not up to code by any means. Uh, so there's either someone who's like, oh yeah, I'm not supposed to tell you about this, but that Lori Strode lady, she's crazy. She put knives in this secret hideout thing, and and she she rigged up the entire house so that she can blow it up at any notice. She did the Denver contractor thing, where a different contractor does every part, but it's a small town, and they all work together. They just go to coffee, and they're like, I put knives in. Well, I put gas lines in. 
I do feel like the main industry in this town was supporting Laurie Strode's uh, PTSD. <laughs> like they're going to be in trouble if Michael Myers is really dead. Yeah. Do, do you think he was? By the way, I, I know. I know he disappeared out of the flaming room. Okay. Final. Final thoughts. Um, did you stay through the credits? Oh, I didn't stay through the credits. No. What happened? Well, first of all, you didn't listen to all of John Carpenter's score, so shame on you. Yes, shame on me. Secondly, the very end, after the credits, what do you hear but Michael Myers breathing underneath the mask? So, I mean, I I think the thought is that if it's a huge hit, which it appears to be, they can expand it to, you know, whatever dumb scenarios they want (laughs) beyond um so it's it's sort of like well we got our cathartic finale but then let's take let's take michael myers to the moon or whatever (laughs) michael myers on mars i watch it All right, Jake, even though I'm not sure you're qualified, that sound means it's time to score the score. And would you remind me, how do we score the score, Jake? Mm, Do we score the score out of a score? That is correct. Yes, which is 20 for the record. Yeah, so this score, this is the one part that actually connects us to the Carpenter Shop directly. Uh, Score by John Carpenter and his son Cody Carpenter and his godson Daniel Davies, who have been you know doing when he tours live they're with him as his as his supporting band um the lost themes albums that he's released they are playing on all of those with him and uh they actually i think they played a little bit on the vampires soundtrack and maybe not anything on ghost mars actually but anyway They've they've worked with them. I, I know they worked with them some also on the uh, the Masters of Horror stuff, but uh, this is sort of the same group that has been releasing those John Carpenter Lost Themes albums, which I love so much. So let's let's talk about this, Jake. Even though you walked out, well, it's better than the ladies who walked out when she started walking through the house with the gun and the flashlight because it got too stressful for them. They didn't have that much left to go. I know. I guess they were just like, "This is this is too much stress." That that's what was my take on it. Like they 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 didn't even like um, turn around to watch it on their way out. They just beelined out of there. All right. So I'm more qualified than those two ladies, at least. Let's discuss this. Where where do you think this ranks among? John Carpenter scores. I mean, I know we already have sort of the template of Halloween laid out, but uh, what did you think? So the thing is, since we did have the already perfect theme from the first film, um, I liked how it was sort of remixed and how it was brought in and out and just in little bits and not like the long mm-hmm. theme throughout it. Um, I really liked this take on it. I liked it a lot as well. I still, and I don't, honestly, I don't know if this is, there's probably people in this camp as well. My favorite Halloween theme is honestly Halloween 3, which is uh, John Carpenter once again. But I think by that point, he's working with Alan Howarth, who he, you know, worked on Escape from New York and all the stuff from the the 80s, uh, pretty much worked with him on. And it just has like an amazing sort of, I mean, if you're... The, the original theme, nothing can, you know, can really compare to it, I guess. But then Halloween 3 is its own beast. And I still think maybe better than this. But I really do like the score uh, quite a bit to the point that, like, I don't even know where I'm scoring it. I'm still, like, trying to uh, trying to place it. But I, I think it's really good. I think uh, one of the things that really works in the original that works here is the use of stingers. Like there's this really 
dark guitar stinger when Michael Myers appears like at the top of Laurie Strode's little, uh, I don't know, panic room shelter thing that I thought was really good. There's also uh, a couple of like back to back songs that uh, are tracks in this that they were really good. One is on the soundtrack. It's called uh, Rod Iron Fence. Oscar basically when Oscar meets his fate. Um, there's a great little uh, little piece that feels like it feels very much like it belongs in the lineage of the original mm-hmm. Halloween score, but also feels modern and uh, like something made today, but it's still stripped down and nice and sparse, but driving. Yeah, a, a lot of this felt like that. just a different take on that. old. It, it's clearly in the family of the old mm-hmm. score, but but not doing a full retro 80s or 70s anything. It, it just used elements from that in the style of a modern a modern horror score, and it was really good. There's also like there's also a track that comes pretty soon after. I think it's when the uh, Allison's running through the woods. It's on the soundtrack. It's called "The Shape Hunts Allison," and it's also like it just has it has the right tone, it has the right feel, it has the right pace, uh, and and that's the thing is it feels. This feels like where I feel like the movie itself maybe misses the mark a little bit being a of the lineage of Halloween. If we're going to make a sequel, this feels about right. That said, I do think I still like the Lost Theme stuff better than this uh, soundtrack as a whole. I, I think and, and it's it's probably because. We're stuck, you know, in the parameters of, okay, well, it's a be Halloween movie. Mm-hmm. And with the Lost Theme stuff, they go in some directions that uh, feel like, you know, this could be from a sci-fi movie and this could be from a horror movie. And, you know, they you can just grab from anywhere, uh, whereas this has to be constrained still to, um, to Halloween. But I think it's really good. I'm, you know, I pre-ordered it sight unseen or... Ear unheard. Sound, un- sound unheard. Unheard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and I don't regret it. Uh, I like it. I, I will definitely listen to this and put this on. Um, and, uh, so I'm, I'm going, gosh, my, I feel like my perspective is so warped because some of the stuff we've been reviewing mm-hmm. lately, some of the su- scores we've been scoring lately have been so like filled with oh, anthrax. Gotta, gotta find something nice to say. <laughs> um, I'm I'm gonna say a solid fifteen on this guy. Oh, I was actually going think? a little higher than that. I, I was gonna okay. I was gonna go with like a, a seventeen. I thought it was really really strong for what it was. Yes, he's playing within constraints that he has, but overall it worked really well. Without it, the movie wouldn't have worked. It wouldn't have felt like Halloween. Yeah. There's a reason yeah. it felt like Halloween, and those little bits of of the score coming in as or of the theme, the Halloween theme coming in as um, we go go about and then kind of culminating towards the end. Um, mm-hmm. I, I, I thought that was really nice. Um, I thought it was a really good job. And clearly, clearly the man's still talented and hasn't lost it, at least. In oh, scoring. absolutely not. Uh, well, and, and there's even there's even parts realm. that don't necessarily feel like they just feel like score to a movie that I appreciate, like as we're sort of developing stuff in the first act with mm-hmm. uh, Lori's daughter and granddaughter. Um, in, in places where it's not just like screaming, this is a horror movie, which I thought was nice. Like it proves that he could, he can still score and score, you know, in a, in a dynamic way. Um, I'm, you know, honestly with the 15, I'm hedging my bets a little bit because I can't remember off the top of my head where I put something like, uh, escape from New York, which I mean, there's still, and that's the thing is there's still John Carpenter themes, um, and, and soundtracks and scores that I like a little better than this, that I would probably go to first. And so that's where like, but 15, it's, it's solid. It's really good. I like it. Yep. That's fair. But Chris, my question for you, when the midnight warriors sit down to watch 2018's Halloween or just listen to the soundtrack, what should they be drinking? 
Jake, I'm glad you asked. Um, as you and probably all of our listeners by this point know, I'm kind of a shill for any movie involving John Carpenter, with perhaps the exception of Escape from L.A. And I'm definitely a shill for basically anything dark and multi released by Founders Brewing Company in Grand Rapids, Michigan, uh, as I have recommended their beers time and time and time again, and I am going to do so again here. So the beer that I'm pairing with David Gordon Green's Halloween, or as I like to call it, Halloween H4O, is Curmudgeon's Better Half by Founders. This is clocking in at 12.7% ABV, so a heavy guy, and then 45 IBU, so not terribly bitter, but in, you know, middle of the spectrum here. And this is actually sort of a variant on Founders Curmudgeon, which has been an annual release by them, which I actually recommended way back on episode 13 when we discussed, I think, the 10th anniversary of Batman Begins, um, because I felt, you know, Bruce Wayne's a curmudgeon. Uh, So this is that curmudgeon, which is an old ale made with molasses. So it's sort of, it's got this sort of old ale bite, but then a little bit of sweetness to it. Uh, and, and it's actually a very properly named beer. Uh, so with this, they've taken the original curmudgeon and they've aged in bourbon barrels that previously held maple syrup. So with the bourbon barrel aging, uh, it adds even more bite to it, but then the maple syrup adds a little more sweetness to it as well. So it's just sort of upping the ante of what, uh, this beer already starts out as. And I guess where I land on it, this is part of their barrel age series, which each year, starting last year, Founders releases six beers that are barrel aged. Some are repeat, some are new for the year. This one happens to be new. I don't know if you'll be able to find it next year or not. Uh, Grab it now if you can. It's in stores right now. Um, Ultimately, where I land on this is sort of the same place where I land on David Gordon Green's Halloween, where I like it. I enjoy it. I don't know if we necessarily needed this. I don't know if we needed the curmudgeon to be aged in bourbon barrels that had maple syrup in them. I kind of wish they would have had another original different beer that they then put in these bourbon barrels because the curmudgeon is just so darn good on its own, but I'm also not going to complain about it. It's really tasty. It's really like it hits for me. And you know, I like a high ABV beer. I like a dark multi beer and I, I love something that's been aged in any sort of barrel. Uh, so it's, it's basically ticks all the boxes for me and it's from founders. So, you know, I love it. Um, it's really good. I just don't know if it needs to be, needs to fall under the curmudgeon banner. That said, it's good. It's delicious. And so if you watch David Gordon Green's Halloween and you can somehow get your hands on founders, curmudgeon's better half, I suggest you do. The one thing that this movie didn't have that some of the older John Carpenter movies had was blatant drinking and driving. (laughs) That's true. Especially in the 80s. Yeah. There's a lot of drinking and driving. The scariest thing in any John Carpenter movie is just disregard for safety. No, there's just sitting and bon meing in this movie. (laughs) All right. David Gordon Green's Halloween is currently slashing box office records nationwide. And you're currently listening to a podcast dedicated to the work of John Carpenter. So we're guessing you've already seen it. Got a hot take on the film or our discussion? Hit up our assistant Henry Swanson and he'll relay the message to us. You can reach out at Porkchop Express at CarpenterCast.com or on Twitter at WSAMPod or leave us a voicemail at 484-424-6362. That's 484-4CINEMA. Hang in there, kid. We'll be right back with some really rad recommendations you won't want to miss.
All right, Jake. It's that time again. Really rad recommendation time. Oh, I've got a good one this time, too. Do you? I'm very curious what you're going to pair with this. Well, um, the thing I found most interesting about this film Mm -hmm. was the relationship between Laurie Strode and The Shape. And I liked that they kept bringing up these notions of like um, uh, how they kind of need each other and they both... You know, he the shape needs to live to find Laurie Strode. They need to have this interaction again. Mm-hmm. How they kind of defined each other's characters and their lives are all defined by the things that go on. And I thought about an even better exploration of that same subject. Okay. You know what I'm talking about, Chris? I only know what you're talking about because I see it in the show notes. But when you wrote it down, I was so perplexed as to how you were going to tie this in. And somehow you have done it. Because it is the Lego Batman movie, the ultimate <laughs> hero-villain relationship film ever made, with, with the best exploration of how a true hero and a true villain can need each other to continue on with the things that they do, and how the existence of both of them and their relationship define each other as the prominent relationships in their lives. Well done. It's the Lego Batman movie. Which is a great movie. It is a great movie, and I thought we did a really good episode on it. It's episode 60, if you go back and find it. It's worth a listen, and um, and and much better than just a kid's uh, Lego movie, or however you want to write it off as. It's really good. It's a solid Batman film, and it's a great character exploration on some characters we know and love. Yeah, I, uh, I second this recommendation entirely. Where can we watch this, Jake? You can stream it on HBO Go. Or it's for rent anywhere else, anywhere you find movies. Or, according to my wife, it is available on the streaming film section of a Condor flight from New Orleans to Frankfurt, Germany. So if you're on that (laughs) flight or watching HBO Go, check out the Lego Batman movie. Good to know. If I make it on that flight, I will uh, (laughs) probably rewatch the Lego Batman movie, among many other films, because there's some time to kill. Oh, for sure. So what do you have, Chris? Uh, I've got something that I, you know, I I wasn't trying to have any sort of tie-ins here. Uh, It's just something that I've been meaning to catch up with for a long time and finally did uh, over the past weekend. But the more I think about it, the more I realize there's sort of, there's there's some solid connections here. Uh, My recommendation is from 1935, Bride of Frankenstein, directed by James Whale. Uh, And James Whale, he also directed Frankenstein and The Invisible Man, which are both like in the collection of probably my favorite of the the monster movies of of the era. Uh, And this has got to be right up there with it as well. Um, the, The thing that I find interesting is, as far as connections go, is this uh, much like not this Halloween, but Halloween two takes place directly like it starts off immediately after uh, the first Frankenstein film and just picks up and and keeps going. And uh, then it also ends with a very similar uh, sort of scene to the end of this new Halloween film. Uh, yeah. For those who haven't seen this, I won't spoil it for those who haven't seen Halloween and have either skipped ahead to here or whatever. I won't spoil it. But the, the basic plot of this is it starts out and, uh, Mary Shelley is actually being, uh, asked by her husband and then his friend, like, Oh, the Frankenstein story you told was so great. How how could you ever come up with something so scary and so great? And she's like, if you like that, I got something else that's even better. Wait until it's followed up. And then she tells this story. And so it's basically following immediately after the end of Frankenstein and tells the story of how uh, Dr. Frankenstein is essentially approached by this. Uh, he's He's sort of recovering from... Uh, you know, recent events, mm-hmm. and he's approached by this just super sketchy evil doctor named Doctor Pretorius, who I guess is actually in Shelley's original. Like, I think this is a subplot or something in Shelley's original um, story. But he approaches him and is like, "Hey, man, science 
It's cool. Look at all these tiny people I made. I grew them. They're tiny people. And then Frankenstein goes from being like, nah, man, I'm not going to do this again to like, hmm, this is interesting. And then essentially Dr. Pretorius like kind of gets him on board and then Frankenstein's like, I don't know, man. And then he uses the monster to sort of force him into building a mate for uh, for Frankenstein's monster, which would be the bride of Frankenstein, even though it's really the bride of doctor or the bride of Frankenstein's monster, but whatever. Uh, and it's, it's really kind of fun and delightful. It actually, I didn't realize that at least from what I can tell the trope of the like wondering person coming across a blind man and who doesn't realize that, they are, mm-hmm. you know, an outlaw or something, um, you know, on, on the run from from people. Like, as far as I can tell, that trope comes from this. I don't know of anything earlier. I know Hitchcock uses it in, I think, Saboteur, um, maybe a decade later. Isn't it in Young Frankenstein? It's in Young, Young Frankenstein, sure. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's the thing, like, Young Frankenstein is directly riffing on that from this one. Oh, okay, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but it shows up in a few places. Um, that comes from this. Uh, and it's, you know, and Frankenstein smokes cigarettes and enjoys cigarettes. And he, like, kind of becomes this character. So you, uh, you know. The monster much, or the doctor? The, sorry, the monster. Yes, the monster. <laughs> uh, becomes this character that you begin to relate to and and love once again much like in in the original except for the fact that he cold-blooded murders some folks in the very opening and so it's this weird like is he should i care for him i I don't know he's named frankenstein's monster not frankenstein's cool bro like he has to do some nasty stuff too but, but I guess that's true. But ultimately, like, I like what they do with the character of Frankenstein's monster. And uh, this movie, honestly, I think this might be better than Frankenstein itself. Uh, it's a it's, talkie, right? It's Yeah, it's a talkie. Um, I mean, Frankenstein is as well. But it, it builds upon, it builds on top of Frankenstein in a way that uh, works really well. But it's also, it enjoys having fun with itself. Uh, too, which I think is nice without being too like outlandishly goofy. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's a good watch. I think along with Frankenstein or the invisible man, uh, if, if you really need, like, if you want a James Wales or James Whale trifecta, uh, triple feature, watch all those in an afternoon. I mean, because they're all just barely over 60 minutes. I think they're like 70 and some change. Uh, so you can, honestly get through them probably faster than a single Lord of the Rings movie. Uh, I think they're old Warner Brother films, right? Uh, Universal. U- Universal. Okay. Yeah. The, the Universal Monsters. Yeah. Uh, that's right. That's right. But yeah, this is right now streaming on Stars, or you can rent it just about anywhere. Uh, I picked up the Blu-ray for 10 bucks, and it came with a digital copy as well. Um, so you could do that too. It's uh, It's really good. I enjoyed it a lot. I'm sure you can find this in like a five films on a DVD collection for five bucks at Walmart kind of thing. Maybe there's, there's definitely some universal monster collections, but because they are a brand per se, um, they're, they're generally, they run a little more of that, but there is, there is a complete, uh, Frankenstein set that actually has also has, uh, like Abin Costello meet Frankenstein and some of them, because like Boris Karloff, still played Frankenstein or Frankenstein's monster in, uh, in that as well. So that, I mean, if you're really interested in, in Frankenstein slash Frankenstein's monster, maybe pick that up. But, uh, yeah, Bride of Frankenstein. It's great. Check it out. I was going to say they're making an Abbott and Costello movie. Uh, they're not, it's a Laurel and Hardy movie. My brain just didn't make that distinction for a minute. Yeah. But it's like a biopic, right? Yeah, I think so. Uh, but it, it, it's, it's also, um, Will Ferrell and John C. Riley. So that's it's probably right. also a comedy, and also a uh, Sherlock Holmes movie. <laughs> this whole premise is sticky. Is <laughs> sweaty. It's sweaty. Very sweaty. Uh, all right. I think that's a wrap for another episode of the Carpenter Shop. Keep an eye out for our brand new episode on John Carpenter's 2001 space western, 
Ghost of Mars, dropping soon. You can find show notes, archives, and a complete list of where to watch each film in the series at carpentercast.com. And check out our Mothership podcast at warstartomidnight.com. You can also say hello to us on Twitter at WSAMPod. If you enjoy the show, tell your friends, tell your casual acquaintances, and tell that cute person in the gym who's always listening to podcasts. Or rate and subscribe to The Carpenter Shop on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to fine audio programming. It'll help us grow the cult of Carpenter, and it'll make you feel awesome. On the other hand, if you're the trolling type who simply hate listening through these credits, go ahead and send our assistant, Henry Swanson, a great big heaping pile of anonymous internet vitriol at porkchopexpress at carpentercast.com. Or if you're a narcissist who simply loves the sound of your own voice, leave us a voicemail and we just might play it on a future episode. Ring that bright red telephone at 484-424-6362. The Carpenter Shop theme song and the featured music on this week's episode are by Dragon in 3. Hear more at dragonin3.com. Thanks for listening, folks. Oh man, I got peanut butter on my penis. <laughs> <laughs>